Why is it that in a society that is so affluent, blessed with so much variety, so much freedom of choice, so many options, that we are in fact seeing near epidemic depression and anxiety? Is the great variety of options available to us a blessing or a curse? Is it good or is it bad? The answer is yes. I assume most of us understand the good of being in a country that offers us so much, but for a few moments, can I just help us look a bit at the dark side? When I was a boy, blue jeans came in one size. Well, not one size, one style at least. It was horribly uncomfortable when it was bought brand new. You couldn't bend your knees, you couldn't move, and if you, if you washed it long enough, wore it long enough, it would finally start wearing. You think that whole thing where back in the 50s we rolled the, the bottoms up was cool? It was just because they didn't offer length sizes back then. <laughs> Thus, a style was formed. One style. We all went to Sears and Roebuck store or ordered it through the Sears and Roebuck catalog, the predecessor to online shopping as we know it today. A few years ago, I was getting ready to speak at a number of youth conferences, and I thought, maybe it's time for me to change my style up a little bit. So I went to a well-known store that sells jeans, and I walked in and was immediately dumbfounded by what I saw in front of me, rows and rows of jeans, cubes stacked up to the sky. So I moved to the first rack, and I started looking at these jeans, and they were like really fancy, and I'm, I'm holding them up and going, I would never wear these. And I, I hear this voice behind me, it's a, a girl who works at the store saying, can I help you, sir? And I look around, she has this little embarrassed look, because what I'm holding up, I realized was from the women's section of the store. So, <laughs> so she gently takes me over to uh, the men's side, and she says, well, what are you looking for? I says, well, I'd like, I'd like some, a pair of jeans. And immediately she started asking me, well, what kind of fit? Skinny fit? You want regular fit? You want relaxed? You want loose? I went, whoa, there's options? She says, oh, my gosh, yes, there's plenty of options. What kind of leg would you like? Tapered? Would you like straight? Would you like bootleg? What type of connection do you want? Zip and snap? Zip and button? Full button? Do you want lacing? I said to her, what I want is the kind when there was only one kind. <laughs> she had no idea what I meant. I said, well, explain why these all look different. She said, oh, well, that's the finish. You can get indigo blue or you can get pre-washed, you can get stone-washed, you can get acid-washed, and now I'm just dizzy. And I'm guessing it showed because she picked up another one and said, distressed? I said, how did you know? Did my face show it? I tried on jeans for about an hour and a half, but I walked out of that store with the best-fitting jeans I had ever owned in my whole life. I did better, but I felt worse. You see, when there was only one option, my expectations were very low. They are what they are. You get on with living. By the way, we called them dungarees back then. Yeah, read your history books. When my expectations were elevated with hundreds of possibilities to choose from, I ought to be able to find the perfect pair. So even though I had a better pair, it didn't match what I now expected and anticipated. I did better, but I was disappointed. And thus, my shopping experience for jeans becomes a metaphor for life 
in Western civilization as we've come to know it. The simple fact is, when we begin a series about making choices, never has that concept brought up so much because we live in a world, let's just face it, it's complicated. I remember as a boy, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being very retro today, I promise you, I won't do this every week, but it's just interesting to compare what was to what is. I remember as a boy, um, we were imagining what it would be like when the year 2000 came. They talked about how technology was going to make life simpler for everyone. We are going to simplify everything. Things would happen so much quicker, we'd only have three and four day work weeks and we could get on with the pleasures of life. Interestingly, the projected advancement in technology has taken place, but human nature has done with it what we do in our brokenness. And rather than being simpler, life is actually far more complicated. Let's look at some of the factors involved in that. First point I want to make, just share three points about this observation about life being complicated. The first is we're overloaded with options. There's a common dogma in our culture, and the dogma goes something like this. To maximize happiness, we need to maximize individual freedom. And the way to maximize individual freedom is to maximize our choices. More choices, more freedom, more freedom, more happiness. The result is an unbelievable amount of options. If you go to your local supermarket, for example, there are 285 varieties of cookies, 75 versions of iced tea, 230 soups, 175 salad dressings, 40 different toothpastes. Trust me, I've tried them all. 275 cereals, just on one trip to the supermarket. Somebody went into a local electronic superstore and looked at all the various components that are for sale in just that one store. They realized that the possibilities in that store alone were 6.5 million variations of entertainment units. Walmart's got its 100,000 products. If you need a good book to read, Amazon's got 27 million of them. If you need a mate, Match.com's got 15 million possible dates for you. This is life as we know it. There are just more options than ever before. The second thing is that all those options make it more complex. It's not just that we have varieties to choose from. They're layered the blue jean shopping spree got me looking for those pictures that showed up behind me for the PowerPoint. And as I was, I came across all sorts of help online for how to buy jeans. Came across this one, the search for the perfect pair of blue jeans. Here's how it op- opens. It can be stressful. <laughs> I found a site by a company called the Blue Jean Bar. The site is called, ready? Denimology. It's become so complex, there's a science for blue jeans. We're laughing because blue jeans are really rather inconsequential. But it really goes to every area. Let me me give you an example. It wasn't a generation ago that the basic assumption was people married pretty early. They settled down with somebody, they married, and they pretty quickly started having kids. Today, it's not when we're going to marry, it's should I marry? And should I marry now or should I marry later? Who should I marry becomes a much more complex idea. We're so used to looking at a variety, it's hard to zero in on anybody. There's a comic from the New Yorker magazine where a woman's walking down the aisle and she looks at the husband and instead of saying, I do, she said, you'll do. (laughs) We just have that feeling that if I settle for this one as nice as she is or as nice as he is, I'll never know if the perfect one's just around the corner. Who do I marry? 
And then once we're married, do I have kids now? Do I not have kids at all? Do I have kids now and then work later? Do I work now and hope that I can have kids later? You see, that's just one area that has become so complex. And then the third observation is that in the midst of all this complexity and variation, the rules are becoming less and less clear to help us make the right choices. This idea of variety of choice has found its way into our religious beliefs. Even God has become a multiple choice. Therefore, the rules have become a multiple choice. And so the modern-day version of the Ten Commandments looks something more like this. I don't know if you've seen this before. It's the Ten Commandments Do-It-Yourself Kit. (laughs) You know, you figure it out. By the way, that's where the phrase, it's written in stone, first came from. The Ten Commandments. Some things are meant to be fixed. We've drifted from that. We've lost the ideas and priorities and morals and values that help us drift through this plethora of options about everything in life and feel like we're making a decision that is correct, at least adequate, and at best, fulfilling. A man named Barry Schwartz wrote an interesting book entitled The Paradox of Choice. What I'm sharing with you today was shaped by Barry's observations in which he not only very effectively points out the overload of options, but he suggests that there are four results of this overload. The first is paralysis. These aren't on the PowerPoint. You'll just have to write them down. The first is paralysis, where we're so stuck looking at options that we have an inability to choose. My living example of that is my wife in a restaurant. About two weeks ago, we were driving through New Jersey. We stopped at this old New Jersey diner. By the way, if you've never eaten at a New Jersey diner, you, you ha- are missing one of the best experiences in the world. We don't know what diners are up here. Pages of food, all of it great, falling off your plate 24 hours a day. It's just wonderful. But I just forgot as we got in there, my wife was sort of <laughs> due to options. So I, I took a few of the pieces from her, left her with a single page, and I, I kind of moved her hand, and she... That, I'll order that. So somehow that's all of us when it comes to life. You know what America's new favorite pastime is? Weighing our options. (laughs) We spend so much time trying to decide and worrying about those decisions that we spend very little time just getting down to life. So we're paralyzed. And the second thing he talks about is that we have higher and higher expectations because there are more and more barriers. We're always looking for the perfect match, whether it's a product, whether it's a job, whether it's a a mate. We're always looking for perfection. And consequently, we have less and less satisfaction with what we have. That's the third thing. And what that leads to is this state of personal disappointment because when you live in a society where we elevate freedom of choice to a divine right, We have no one to blame but ourselves if our choices don't produce the satisfaction we're looking for. Everything about our society is so rooted in that dogma that we talked about that it's hard for us to step back and get off the merry-go-round and go, whoa. But it's becoming increasingly obvious that abundant opportunity, abundant options, abundant choices does not lead us to abundant living. And that's the cue for Jesus to come on stage and to remind us through words that were spoken 2,000 years ago in a far simpler time 
calling through the complexity of today to remind us that there is a path to abundant living. The world around you is shaped to take life from you. The thief comes into your life to rob, steal, and destroy. But I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Well, we've set the issue. And maybe you're thinking, you know, Tom, they're just choices, and most of them really don't matter anyway, and I don't get hung up on them. What is so important about this? Let's talk about the various levels of choices that are out there, and do they all play into each other? You know, there's the eternal choices, where getting it right matters for all time. You think God's concerned about those? Are those important? You betcha. How about the big life-shaping decisions? Career, school, mate, moving to a certain town. How about those big decisions? Do you think finding a, a, a way through those is important? Yeah, most likely. And, and then how about those mundane decisions? You know, the 40 toothpastes. Plaid or the solid black? Do I eat meat tonight or not ever? You know, what about those decisions? Do they matter? The answer is maybe. Yes and no. One of the weeks we're going to spend in this four-week series is, what is this thing about God's will and our will? Man's freedom to choose and God's will. How do those things work together? How does providence work its way into my life? How can I know what God's will is? We're going to spend a week looking at that whole fascinating area. We look at these small choices, and within God's grand scheme, he probably says enjoy. So in one sense, no, they're not that big of a deal. But in one sense, yes, they are, because patterns emerge that reveal a lot about who we are as people. And so, yeah, even the everyday choices matter on some grand scheme. There's this interesting passage in the Bible where we're going to spend our time today. It's it's Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I want to encourage you to turn there with me. And we're going to begin reading in a moment in verse 11. I want to set the stage for you, tell you the story behind it. This is near the end of Moses' life, part of his final exhorting of uh, the children of Israel. And this particular group that he's talking to is a completely different group of people than those that he left the promised land with. That generation made all, this is really important to understand the context, that generation made all the wrong choices. God has a plan, of course he does. Can I, by my choices, miss out on that? Yeah, I think you can, and I think the Bible's filled with stories about that. Here's a whole generation that God said, if you'll be faithful, if you'll follow, I'm going to give you that promised land. And the whole generation made choices that discounted their ability to meet that promise. Now, in the long term, God's plan was accomplished. The thing is, we never stifle God's long-term plan. That's where God's sovereignty fits in. God will do what he wants to do in the grand scheme. But we can discount ourselves as participants in that plan. And, and here a whole generation failed. They could never get out of the, the social brokenness and never stop being slaves in their own thinking. And so they just were never able to take those bold steps. So for 40 years, Moses had to babysit them as they just drifted around the wilderness. And millions of people died until that entire generation faded. You're talking about hundreds of people dying literally every day for 40 years. That's pretty devastating. This generation that Moses is speaking to now came up under that. And they knew the story. They knew why this was happening. And this is the generation that's going to go forward and by faith get the promise of God. They're going to enter into the land. 
And this is Moses' swan song. It's his last opportunity to speak to them. He gathers this new generation. He tells them the whole tale of what God did, how the generation before them failed, and he starts talking to them about what's in front of them, lays out the plan and challenges them to follow God's purposes and to make better choices than their parents made. We're going to pick it up at verse 11. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven? This is definitely sarcasm here. Who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we can obey it? No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth, it's in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, And if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day, and this is what I want you to hear, the climactic statement. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. That's what I've done. I've laid it out so plainly for you that the direction of your life, which will shape the choices you make, moves in two diametrically opposed directions. One pattern leads to death. The other pattern leads to life. And then he says this. I think that in this conversation, you can see Moses is a little ornery, a little bitter. When they say, we're going to obey, he looks at them and goes, "Mm, no, you won't. No, yes, we will. No, you won't. You're not going to obey. But when you fail, come back to the Lord, and he'll restore you, and here's how you get back. So you see this sort of cynicism. That's the word I'm looking for. You see the cynicism in Moses. But at this moment, he, he, beyond the sarcasm, he says, look, I've laid it out clearly. And then at the end of verse 19, he expresses his great wish when he says, now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is it possible that God is less concerned on a whole with the specifics of most of our choices, less concerned with what we choose, far more concerned with how we choose. And if we can find the secret to that, we can be liberated to follow a path that by habit and by transformation of God in us is a pattern that leads us every day into choosing life, whether it's the minutia or whether it's the big pictures. Is it possible that we can find a way to choose joyfully because we found a track that God prescribes for us? And is it possible that that track is clearer, nearer to us than we think? You see, we've turned the idea of knowing God's will into this sort of spiritual divining rod 
If you're hoping I will give you a five-step plan for making the right decision about your mate, I'll disappoint you. But so would any five-step plan. Because that's not how God does it. God wants to set us on a course of making choices because we have made the ultimate choice. Uh, Let me just pass a couple quick observations about this, and then I'll explain that last comment I just made. Four quick things about living and dying with the choices we make. First, it's clear God gave us freedom to choose. I mean, it's all throughout the Bible. It begins in Genesis chapter 2. You know, God gave us freedom to choose. But it's also clear that our choices have consequences. Part of understanding my ability to choose is to stop looking at it as a right, which is what Americans have turned our freedom of choice into. It's a right. It's not. It's a responsibility. God gave it to us, but because of that, we bear the consequences. Too many people want the ability to choose without taking responsibility for the results of those choices. So they make choices, and life goes in a pattern towards death, some form of death. Relationships die, careers die, fortunes die, people die, and it's a pattern of bad choices, but when it's all done, we go, God, why didn't you keep this from happening? Well, wait a minute. You, you wanted to choose, right? Yes, I did. Did you choose? Yes, I did. Did what happened come from that choice? No. Couldn't have. That one's your fault. You see, it comes with consequences. And and that's clear. In in this passage, for sure, Moses is saying it's really a lot clearer than we think it is. Third, God offers clearer guidance than we think. We'll explore that. That's my tickler for the next three weeks. Come back and we'll look at how God gives us clearer guidance in terms of the, the choosing process. And then fourth, the past doesn't have to impact or determine the future. And that is true both generationally. Some of you that are living out the damage of uh, some upbringing that you had or some traumatic experience of your past and are still terribly impacted by that to the point where you feel like you'll never break free. Listen, the past doesn't dictate the future. This can be a moment where you begin choosing life and it changes you forever. I love that thought. Some of you who feel that, no, it's not about what other people have done for me. It's my past. It's my choices. It's my decisions. Maybe you've come here knowing you're making right now horrible choices for your life, and you don't seem to be able to see your way through it or have the will to stop. Even what was your past at this very moment right now doesn't have to dictate how you go forward. There's this wonderful hope. God says, look, I can teach you the way that will guide you into life, and I'm hoping you will. Now choose life. This generation did for a short time experience primarily a great faithfulness of God, but Moses' prediction did come true. Generations came who did begin making choices that led to death, not life. Eventually, we come to a prophet named Jeremiah, who is now speaking to one such generation who has so disobeyed God that they've lost that promised land, and now they're outcasts in Babylon. Their choices have led to the apparent death of a nation, to the death of many of their children, their friends, their spouses, to the death of dreams. 
And Jeremiah speaks about that powerful hope. It's Jeremiah 29. I just want to read it for you. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed, that's the prophesied period of discipline. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, this holy land. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Very famous words filled with hope for us today when we think about choices and God's plan. God starts by saying, I know the plans I have for you. And there are plans that are about life, not death, blessing, not curse. There are plans for a hope and a future. What we learn, first of all, is that God's the one that knows the plan. But we get a glimpse of this second point. For most of us, a change in our way of thinking. There is no place in the Bible where God ever promises to reveal that plan completely to you and me. There's no blueprint that God says, here it is. Here's what the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years looks like. God has the plan. He says, it's a good plan. God, can you show me the plan? No, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm just telling you I've got the plan. He's got the plan. He says, okay, here, here's your first right choice. Here's the first step of that plan. Search for me with all of your heart. It's me that you want to stay close to. I got the plan. Search for me with all your heart. He asks us to seek him and let him lead. And he gives us this promise from Psalm 32, verse 8. And I wonder if we can say it together as we wrap up this morning. Say it with me. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. God has a plan. And he says, if you stay near me, I'm going to show you the way. And we're going to learn the secret to that from God's word in the weeks ahead. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the lessons that we're learning already. I pray that in some way we were able to look at this society of blessing and abundance and understand that in some ways it's a product of a moral and social and spiritual brokenness that is never satisfied, always seeking for perfection thinking that man can create it on his own when in fact there's only one perfection, and that's you. To seek perfection for all of us is really a search for you, Father. It's why you say, look, I've got the plan. It's plans for hope and a future, but it starts with you seeking me with all your heart. Father, I pray that that would be the first step each of us take today. I thank you that what is true of the Father is incarnate in the Son, Jesus, who said, I came that you might have life. I am the way to that life. I'm the truth that guides you into those choices, but in the end, it's me that is life abundant. Lord, may Jesus Christ fill our hearts, our vision, our love, our passion, and may we find that you, all of you, 
is more than enough for all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.